Hey there, my name is Robert Green, and welcome to Kleptocracy and Corruption, Afghanistan. This podcast series will seek to answer the question, why, after 20 years and $2 trillion spent, is Afghanistan still the world's sixth poorest country, reconstruction projects have failed to materialize, and the Taliban were able to take control of the entire country in just nine days. Before I get into today's topic, I want to provide you with some background on my motivation for this podcast and why I decided to focus on Afghanistan. My motivation for starting this podcast is multifaceted. First off, we've been at war in Afghanistan for the last 20 years, and I'm only 21 years old. So for all my life, the United States has been at war with an enemy that many people really don't know that much about, especially people in my own age group. So by starting this podcast, I hope to make information more accessible and allow people to learn a little bit more about what's been going on in our country's involvement in Afghanistan. Furthermore, I believe that we can use policy to create a more fair and equitable society, but the first step in doing so is to acknowledge our past policy failures, and a glaring example of that is the last 20 years in Afghanistan. Not only were the American people misled on what the policy goals of our time in Afghanistan were supposed to be, but the U.S. government itself didn't even seem to know what policy outcomes they wanted to accomplish. Over the course of this podcast, I will approach the topic from the point of view that the negative outcomes of the last 20 years of Afghan politics and U.S.-led policies stems from the formation of an Afghan kleptocracy and widespread political, cultural, and economic corruption. Over the course of the series, I hope that we will be able to draw some conclusions on what the U.S. government could have done differently, and most importantly, what policies we can implement in the future to avoid the same types of failures. I thank you in advance for listening and encourage you to think deeply and critically throughout each episode. Let's get into it. So in this episode, I'll be covering some key topics that serve as a sort of introduction to the rest of this series. So first off, I'm going to present some key terms because, as I said earlier, this podcast will be accessible to people of all backgrounds. Next, we're going to look at how the U.S. initially got involved in Afghanistan and what our initial motivation for going there was and what were the initial goals that we had going in and were these goals well thought out. What was the original purpose of the invasion and... At what point did it change from taking out the Taliban to a full-fledged state-building project? Lastly, I'm going to provide some Afghan history and present you with a timeline starting with the U.S. invasion in 2001 and ending with the withdrawal of U.S. troops in 2021. So the title of this podcast is Kleptocracy and Corruption, and not everyone may know what these terms mean. So let's define them. What is kleptocracy? A kleptocracy is a government whose leaders make themselves rich and powerful by stealing from the rest of the population, and most often, this is achieved through the misuse and misappropriation of funds. In other words, instead of using funds to benefit all the people of their country and improve their society, leaders in a kleptocracy abuse their positions to consolidate their own personal wealth and power. 
Now that we have a working definition of kleptocracy, what actually leads to the formation of a kleptocracy? Well, the mechanism for creating kleptocracy is corruption. Corruption can be defined as dishonest or illegal behavior, especially by powerful people, most often government officials. Throughout this podcast, it's going to be important to remember and understand these two terms because each episode, we will be looking at the policy mistakes and the mechanisms that helped corruption flourish and ultimately form the kleptocracy. With that in mind, let's now get into the history of of Afghanistan and try to understand how that history can be used as context for understanding the last 20 years of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. Afghanistan's history is a long and murky story. Over the course of their history, many world powers have tried to invade Afghanistan And none of them have really been successful. For example, in the 19th century, multiple times the British Empire attempted to invade Afghanistan, setting up multiple leaders that were favorable to their cause, but ultimately they weren't very successful. And the Afghan people, mostly led by tribal elders and strong tribal groups, were able to reestablish control throughout the country. The more modern example of a failed invasion of Afghanistan was in the 1980s when the Soviet Union attempted to invade Afghanistan. This war lasted for about a decade and resulted in tremendous loss of life and ultimately the defeat of the Soviet Union at the hands of the Mujahideen forces. My intent in providing these examples is show that from the onset of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, most historians would look at the situation and see that, historically, Afghanistan has been a very, very difficult place to conquer, and there's no reason for the, that the U.S. should be exempt from this history. Personally, I find it unrealistic for the United States to have assumed that the outcome of this war would have been any different than the previous wars especially because the last two nations to invade Afghanistan were also both world powers with the British Empire and the Soviet Union. I think one reason to explain why there was an increased optimism for success could come back to the sense of American exceptionalism or a sort of arrogance by the leadership of the United States. This connects to my point that the American people were misled in regards to how long we would be in Afghanistan, because ultimately, much of the leadership did not account for historical trends and thought it would be a quick war. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that the reasoning for the U.S. invasion and the subsequent actions of attempting to defeat the Taliban were not warranted. Following the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan, the country was plunged into a state of civil war. Heavily armed factions loyal to various Mujahideen leaders vied for power. Almost immediately, the Islamic fundamentalist, militant, and jihadist organization known as the Taliban emerged as a force to be reckoned with. In 1996, only four years into the civil war, The Taliban were able to capture the capital of Kabul, capture the former president, and execute him. The rapid 
ascension of the Taliban provides a chilling foreshadowing to the events of the summer of 2021. After the rise of the Taliban in 1996, Afghanistan became subject to oppressive and discriminatory laws, as well as continued violence. Radical Sharia law was being implemented, women's rights trampled upon, terrorist activities were flourishing, and really utter chaos that just saw the dissolution of rule of law from our Western point of view. This leads me to the main reason why the United States invaded Afghanistan, and that is the September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States by Al-Qaeda, a multinationalist militant Sunni Islamic extremist network that was operating out of Afghanistan with the blessing of the Afghan Taliban. So, the initial goals of the United States going into Afghanistan was to defeat Al-Qaeda. But President Bush's words about the upcoming war on terror seemed to leave lots of room for interpretation. <laughs> on September 20th, 2001, President Bush said, Our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. Although this goal has good intentions, its ambiguity and broadness leave room for tremendous amounts of confusion surrounding exactly what the United States plans to do in the future. It should be clear that what President Bush was saying was not in tune with many Americans' hope that the war in Afghanistan would be over quickly. For many, it seemed like right off the bat, Bush was committing to an indefinite war. Furthermore, Although Bush did not explicitly state that Afghan reconstruction was an initial goal, there were hints of it when he said on October 7th, 2001, the first day of the war, the oppressed people of Afghanistan will know the generosity of America and our allies. As we strike military targets, we will also drop food, medicine, and supplies to the starving and suffering men and women and children of Afghanistan. The United States of America is a friend to the Afghan people, and we are a friend, and we are the friends of almost one billion worldwide who practice the Islamic faith. The United States of America is an enemy of those who aid terrorists and of the barbaric criminals who profane a great religion by committing murder in its name. The point I'm trying to make here with this quote is that from the start of the war. The initial goals of the United States were not clear. Mixed messages were being sent to the American people. On one hand, many thought there would be a quick war, but then Bush was saying we were launching a global war on terror. Combine that with the ambiguity of Reconstruction, and you can see how problems would arise quickly. Following the tragic September 11th attacks, killing nearly 3,000 Americans, the United States demanded that the Afghan Taliban hand over Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda, and his co-conspirators. Unsurprisingly, the Taliban denied this demand and continued to let Al-Qaeda use Afghanistan as a safe haven to launch their terrorist operations. Following this refusal, 
the United States launched an invasion into Afghanistan on October 7, 2001, a little under a month after the September 11th attacks. When the United States initially invaded Afghanistan, there was a sense that the war was not one that would last very long. This is especially due to the fact that U.S. air power and military strikes, as well as the use of special operations forces and and conventional forces, were effective in initially pushing the Taliban back in the early weeks of the war. The sense that the war would be a short one also stemmed from the rhetoric coming from the White House. In 2002, President Bush was quoted saying, The history of military conflict in Afghanistan has been one of initial success, followed by long years of floundering and ultimate failure. We are not going to repeat that mistake. This quote shows us that already we are seeing contradicting views of the war and the United States' goals from the highest levels of government. Furthermore, if President Bush recognized the history that I laid out earlier, why did we end up in Afghanistan for two decades? A little over a month after the U.S. had invaded Afghanistan, the Taliban government was already ousted from power and the United States was starting to set up an interim government composed of its allies and local warlords that it supported. The appointment of U.S.-backed warlords and fighters to government positions foreshadows the formation of a kleptocracy because right off the bat, the United States is building a government solely based on loyalty to the United States and not on merit or political experience. For example, when Hamid Karzai was appointed head of the interim government, largely due to his strong U.S. backing, there were immediate allegations of corruption and nepotism towards his own tribe. For example, Karzai's brother was able to form his own private security forces, dominate the real estate industry, and control supply supply routes in Kandahar. What we see here is the United States making leadership decisions solely based on who is loyal to them and who looks out for their own personal interest. This exposed a critical flaw in U.S. policy in Afghanistan, which is that it continually fails to take into account the diverse tribal, multi-ethnic, and multilinguistic demographics of Afghanistan. In this case, the U.S. backed a leader of Pashtun ethnicity, the ethnic majority, without taking into consideration that that this could create conflict with the Tajik Northern Alliance, which was a key U.S. ally in the initial fight against the Taliban. From the start, what looked like a success in setting up a government was marred with ethnic strife. Following this initial success, we see within the next two years that the U.S. may have developed a false sense of success and superiority and ultimately became complacent. This was evident when Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was quoted in 2003 saying, We clearly clearly have moved from major combat activity to a period of stability and stabilization and reconstruction activities. 
already at this point, we're seeing a disconnect between the policy goals of the U.S. government and what the American people are being told. Because what initially seemed like a war that was just go that we would just go in, get Osama bin Laden, get out. Clearly, that didn't happen for quite some time. Looks like it's going to be a prolonged conflict. Looking at Rumsfeld's language, we see how he talks about stabilization and reconstruction, and it seems to foreshadow the decades to come, because it's clear that stabilization and reconstruction activities weren't something that were going to get done immediately. So this leads to the question of, at what point did the U.S. mission in Afghanistan change from finding Osama bin Laden to a full-on state-building project? The answer to this question lies in the finances and the funding that the United States was giving to Afghanistan. Although you can argue the United States strategy in Afghanistan turned to state building in 2002 with the establishment of provincial reconstruction teams, or around 2004 with the election of Hamid Karzai as president, I would argue that a more distinct change in this strategy came after the election of President Obama and the huge influx of spending we saw in Afghanistan. Up until this point, the United States was bringing in large amounts of cash in Afghanistan, but more seemed to be flirting with a full-on state-building project and not committing to a full-scale project. But in 2009, we see a drastic increase in funding that built on unhealthy earlier economic policy and a distinct reorientation of policy towards state building. As early as 2009, the U.S. strategy in Afghanistan was changed to a full military operation, no longer the soft footprint approach of President Bush, but a full military operation and state building operation with upwards of $120 billion being spent a year and an influx of over 15,000 U.S. troops. This increased level of spending and, excuse me, this increased level of spending is a key point in establishing the timeline of the United States overall time in Afghanistan. Overall, the turning point here is quite tangible. An earlier date for this policy transition could be 2006 with the reemergence of the Taliban, but for my research, I found 2009 as an acceptable transition point because that is when we see this large flow of cash into Afghanistan that ultimately, I believe, facilitated corruption and that forming of an Afghan kleptocracy. Things really start to change and pick up in 2009 with this influx of cash. That's where we start to see the levels of corruption going up and the kleptocracy in Afghanistan actually being able to form because the formation of kleptocracy is rooted in having the necessary funds that you can misappropriate and government and the government can misuse to consolidate their power over the nation. So now let's go into a timeline. In establishing a timeline, I've decided to blend the timeline established retro, <clears throat> retrospectively by the United States Inspector General in the summer of 2021 with my own interpretation of the last 20 years. 
So the timeline of these events can be broken down into four distinct periods. First off, we have the period from 2001 to 2008. This was marked by initial success, then followed by a reemergence of the Taliban. Um, and I will refer to this period as the early period. Starting in 2008-2009, we see a new period in the war that is characterized by the emergence of unhealthy spending habits, increased U.S. military presence in Afghanistan, and ultimately, this is where we start to see the culmination of corruption being amplified by access to endless supplies of cash, which in turn starts to develop the kleptocracy. Starting in 2012 and ending around 2015, we have a period that is characterized by the realization that the state-building efforts, the reconstruction efforts, and the endless amounts of money being poured into Afghanistan aren't resulting in the changes that they were intended to. Now, this is because of a multitude of reasons that will be explored in further episodes, but this will be called the realization period. Lastly, we have 2016 to 2021, which can be seen as the era of withdrawal, so to speak, the, that eventually culminates in Joe Biden giving the order for U.S. troops to withdraw from Afghanistan and then the resulting takeover of the country by the Taliban once again. So, I recognize that I threw a lot of information out at you, but the intention of this is to set the stage for what is to come in future episodes. Now that we have a timeline set, it'll be easier to understand what's going on in Afghanistan and what was happening in the background when new U.S. policies were being implemented. And it'll also give us some historical context. So when we see new policies or unhealthy economic spending patterns, we can see how it relates to the past as well. And if the U.S. was making the same mistakes as their predecessors in um, who invaded Afghanistan, or if they were actually acknowledging that history. Next week's episode, we'll be getting into patterns of unhealthy economic policy and look at how spending patterns were different among the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations. Thank you for listening to Kleptocracy and Corruption. I hope you learned something new, and I can't wait for you to join me next week. Make sure to give the podcast a like and to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Thank you, and see you next week.